chapter 11. <clears throat> Last time we went from the flood on through the next 400 years leading up to the time of Abraham. Now it would, uh, and, and during those four to 500 years, now that's when the wickedness again became very great on the earth. It was during that four or 500 years now that we said that Nimrod uh, set up his southern kingdom with Babylon as its capital. And then he went up north and set up his northern kingdom with five huge cities and the capital being um, uh, Nineveh. So basically he controlled the world because all the world had settled right in that area. So he basically controlled the world. He led thousands into rebellion against God. Now you know, when Satan didn't succeed, when he led a third of the angels in rebellion against God and was kicked out of heaven, when he didn't succeed, I would have thought he would have given up. You know, if I'd been kicked out of heaven, I think I would have given up. But he didn't give up. And he has always found men and women throughout the ages that he could still use to lead a rebellion against God. And Nimrod was one of, one of the first. And so that's what he does. He finds people that he can lead in rebellion against God. Now, even though ultimately he's not going to succeed for a time, he appears to succeed because so many go the way of evil. You know, when you look at, at the statistics, uh, there's so many going the way of evil, and there's only a remnant going with God, really, in comparison to how many people there are. Well, back in Abraham's time, Abraham was the beginning of this remnant that God was, uh, was uh, putting together. So in Genesis chapter 11, starting with verse 26, it says, And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. Abram's wife, of course, was Sarai. And uh, then go on to verse 30. Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. I thought it was interesting. The son that died, his name was Haran, and they settled in Haran. So it makes me think that they may have established this community. They may have gone this far and, and made their own community and, and, and named it after the son. Either that or it was a coincidence that, uh, that it was the same name as, as his son. But you know, it's no wonder that God told Abram to leave his family and leave his country. Now, Abraham had gotten his call back in his hometown in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God had told him, pack up and leave. Well, that makes sense since Ur was a Babylonian territory. So no wonder God wanted to get him out of there. You know, this was a part of the pagan kingdom that Nimrod had set up several generations before. Now, the Babylonians had many gods and goddesses. They worshipped fire. That was one of the main things they worshipped. They, they worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then they worshipped nature. And when you read about them, you find that they were highly New Age. Now, it wasn't called New Age back then, but New Age is certainly not new. It goes back clear to the time of Babylon. So um, the only difference 
is their pagan rites centered around a lot of perverted sexual acts. Now, the city of Ur was actually a pre-flood city. Now, by that, I mean that it was a city that was destroyed by the flood, and then when the earth began to populate again, they reconstructed this city of Ur. Now, before Abram's time, Ur had become known as one of the most magnificent cities in the entire world. It was a very wealthy city. Now, it's located, it was located just miles from the place that's traditionally thought of as the place where the Garden of Eden was located. Now, archaeologists have uh, uncovered so many things in their excavations. They've uncovered schools in Ur. They've uncovered temples. They've uncovered libraries with thousands of books. Of course, their books were etched in, in clay tablets. But all of this was in the ruins there of Ur, Abram's hometown. They found dictionaries. I can remember the first time I saw the old Webster's Dictionary, and I thought, oh my goodness, I was so impressed with how old the dictionary was and, and, and how godly the definitions were. But I thought, my goodness, here 5,000 years ago, they're uh, finding that they had all of these dictionaries, these encyclopedias, grammar books, uh, reference books. They had math books. They had geography books of all kinds, uh, you know, showing the lay of the land, books on politics, books on religion every kind of book you can imagine in their libraries. They literally found one entire classroom, 150 school tablets, and on those tablets were math and medical texts. So they think that they found a classroom of medical students, 150 students that were going to become doctors. Now, in spite of the fact that they had such primitive and ridiculous idol worship, we find that here in Ur they were extremely well-educated. But you know, I thought about that, and I thought it's amazing that when man turns away from God, the minute he does, no matter how well man has developed his mind, the devil is going to see to it that that man uh, becomes very foolish. The devil makes a, a, a fool out of him. Now, there was no record found in the city of Ur. They, they've not been able to excavate anything that showed anything about the one true God. So evidently, there was no worship of God in Ur. And yet, in the midst of that town, and in the midst of everyone, including his family, worshiping idols, Abraham got a call on his life. Now, we know that that call came while he was still in Ur because in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, it says that God appeared to Abram. I think it's interesting that in the midst of all of this pagan worship, God appears to Abraham and gives him a message. And this happens, happened before he ever moved out of Ur. Now, we read in Genesis 11, verse 26, that his father, his nephew Lot... Abram and his brother and their wives all moved to Haran. Now, we don't know if they moved because Abraham got a call from God. You know, there's a possibility that he told his family that he had ha had this call from God telling him to move, and maybe they moved with him. We don't know. All we know is that they moved as far as Haran, and they stayed there until Terah died. Now, in retrospect, we see why God had them stay there until the father died, because Joshua 24, verse 2, lets us know that Terah was an idol worshiper. So if Abram had taken his father with him into the promised land, you know, he would have had a curse hanging over his head. It would have undone everything that God was trying to do. So when Terah finally died, Abraham was 75 years old. 
So he didn't even start the call on his life until he was 75 years old. You know, if, if we waited until we were 75 to start the call on our life, we'd probably think it wasn't worth it. But think what all God did in the life of Abraham after his 75th birthday. Now, we said last time in our study of the Tower of Babel that Shem, this was the godly son of Noah, the one that chose to uh, go with God and, and preserve the, the, the truths of God, he was an ancestor to Abraham himself. And he was still alive at the time of Abraham. Now, we also know that Abram somehow came into possession of all the ancient records that dated back clear to the time of um, Adam. And the scholars say that there's no reason uh, for us not to believe that he got them from Shem. That Shem was still alive at that time. Shem would have lived somewhere in that area. And so they feel like that Shem himself gave all these records to Abraham. And they say that he may well have even gone to the city of Ur, or, or perhaps to Haran. Now, let me give you just a little bit of review from last week. If you'll take down this reference in Adam's genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and then also in Noah's genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, if the writer of Genesis had only given us the total number of years that each man lived, well, we still wouldn't have been able to, to have calculated uh, the amount of time that passed. But I, I want you to see the hand of God. I want you to see the unique way that God always does everything that he does. Instead of just telling us how long each man lived, instead the writer of Genesis gave the father's age at the time of the birth of his son. And then he also gave the son's age at the birth of his son. So it gave us then an accurate count of years from Adam to Noah and then from Noah to Abraham. Now, if we just knew how long each man lived, well, you know, because of the overlap of ages, the overlap of their lives, we'd have no idea how much time passed. But I thought how unique God is to, to put it down in such a way that we could calculate the time exactly. Now, up to the time of Noah, it wasn't anything for a man to live close to a thousand years. So it really only took two lifespans from Adam to get to Abraham. In fact, Adam himself lived through all of his descendants up until just 100 years before Noah. Well, that's hard for us to realize that, that, that he lived almost all the way to Noah. Now, we talk a lot about Enoch, who walked so closely with God that he was taken up. But we fail to realize that Enoch lived at the same time that Adam lived. Enoch obviously had a, a special walk with God, and Adam lived during that time, and it that may have been the reason that he had such a close walk with God. He may have talked to Adam, and Adam may have told him what it was like to have fellowship with God and have communion with God. And there might have been something inside of Enoch that said, I want that, you know. And, and that uh, may well have been what in, encouraged him to seek after God. Now, Enoch's firstborn son was named Methuselah. Methuselah lived 969 years. He's the oldest recorded age in the Bible. Now, the reason that's so significant is because he lived at the same time and in the same area as Adam lived. And that gave him plenty of time. It gave him 243 years to get all the information about the Garden of Eden. 
It gave him plenty of time to find out what it would have been like to have talked with God, to walk with him in the cool of the day. Gave him plenty of time to find out how sin came in. Gave him plenty of time to find out the difference between life with a God nature versus life with sin nature. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, Adam, you know, explained all of these things to these faithful men because we have 10 faithful men from Adam all the way to Noah. And I'm sure that the reason they were faithful is because Adam was telling them what it was like. Now, Methuselah was uh, Enoch's firstborn son and he was Noah's grandfather. Now, I personally believe that it may well have been a part of Enoch's spiritual inheritance because he watched so closely with God. And I feel like maybe a part of his spiritual inheritance that he left to his son was to give Methuselah the privilege of taking a firsthand eyewitness account of Adam all the way to Noah and to his son. Because, see, when we live for God, God allows us to have a spiritual inheritance to hand down to our children. And I believe that was a part of that inheritance. And Shem then was going to be alive at the same time as, as Abraham. Now, God has a reason for everything, and there was a reason why Methuselah lived longer than any other man. It's no accident that he lived at the time of Adam and also at the time of Noah and his son Shem. And then Shem, of course, he lived 600 years, so he outlived almost all of his descendants for nine generations. Now, I want you to think about that. We can't even name our ancestors for nine generations back, you know, and he lived through nine generations. I started thinking how far back I could uh, name, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and after I got past my great-grandfather, I didn't even know the names. And yet he lived through all these generations. Now, if we had someone alive today who lived through nine generations, he would have been born in the early 1700s. So think about that. That means that he would have lived through World War II. He would have lived back through World War I. He would have lived through uh, the Spanish War. He would have lived through the Civil War. Uh, you know, even two generations before the American Revolution. So that kind of gives you some idea of the, the time span we're talking about. And that's just talking about our lifespan today, you know, not counting the fact that they lived for almost a thousand years. Now, Shem knew about the pre-flood world, and he also knew about the post-flood world. You know, we don't think about the fact that these people had to come to, to Shem and say, what was it like before the flood? What, what was the world like? And he lived all through the reign of Nimrod. And he witnessed Nimrod establishing this, this wicked, these wicked empires on the earth. And can't you just imagine as he lived through seeing, uh, actu he, didn't actually, he was not actually born into Shem's line. He was born in Ham's line of descendants. But can't you just imagine how it must have made Shem feel when he, when he saw Nimrod building these wicked empires and uh, uh, allowing that wickedness to come back on the earth again. You know, he must have said, oh God, what can we do about this? Because we look around in our world today and we're saying, Lord, you know, surely there's something we can do. Well, I can just imagine how Shem was grieved when he saw the very thing happening again to the world that had caused the world to be flooded the first time. 
And then we find that Shem lives on for 150 years during the life of Abraham. Now he was alive for 75 years after Abraham had received the covenant. He was even alive after the promised son Isaac was born. So I think it's interesting to realize that Shem saw that, the promise of the father. He saw the, uh, the promised son. Now for so many years as I would study the Bible, I thought that Adam could, uh, not Adam, but uh, Abraham could only have known about God through divine revelation. But as you start seeing these genealogies and, and, you, and you start studying them, you realize that there was an easy tie between. There was an easy link in there for these men firsthand to have known what it was like. Now, according to Bible scholars, there's very little doubt about Abraham receiving the story of creation, the fall of man, the, uh, the story of the flood, and all these different things from Shem himself. Uh, because see, he didn't live around the world from him. They all lived in the same area. Now, it was actually more of a direct link for Abram to get that information that took place 2,000 years before than it is for us to be able to get information uh, of things that happened 200 years uh, before. Okay, um, we know then that this information now was handed down. But how was it recorded? You know, was it all word of mouth? Did, did they hand it down word of mouth and then all of a sudden somebody decided to write it down? No, we find that it was far from word of mouth. Even though there were a lot of traditions that were handed down word of mouth, there were 11 ancient documents handed down. And these were very accurate family records of God's chosen family. And those 11 documents now cover a little more than 2,000 years of man's history. I want you to keep in mind, there's only been 6,000 years of man's history up to present day. And the first 2,000 years, now, they were, it was recorded in these 11 documents. Now, these documents began with the creation of man, man, and they go clear through the call of a man who was going to father the, uh, the Jewish nation. Now, these documents include the time when Abraham's descendants go into Egypt, uh, during the famine, and then the last document, the last of these 11 documents, ends as they're ready to come out uh, of Egypt as a nation. Now, this first 2,000 years that's covered by these 11 documents uh, is a period of time when God is developing a family to produce the Messiah, and he's working on a family. And then in the last document, you see that he's turning that family into a nation, He's turning the family of Abraham into the, the nation of Israel. And what's unique is that this first 2,000 years of mankind's history is all recorded in one book, the book of Genesis. That's why the book of Genesis is so important. You know, if you'll just take the book of Genesis and just study it and, and uh, take notes in the margin, there, there's no way for me to tell you how rich a study like that can be. Because, see, everything... In Genesis, everything of significance throughout the entire Bible is first mentioned over there in Genesis. If it's of significance, you're going to find some kind of hint or some kind of first mention there. Anytime uh, you go through there, you're going to find the covenants. You're going to find tithing. You're going to find righteousness. You're going to find about God's mercy. You're going to find uh, the promise of the Messiah. You're going to find sin. Everything is mentioned first in that one book. 
Now, one third of all of man's history put together is recorded in just one book taken from 11 documents. And to me, that's just awesome when you think about that. Then the next 2,000 years of man's history shows God developing that Jewish nation until the Messiah is birthed. Now, the records of the second 2,000 years starts at the end of, of Genesis, and, and that record then goes clear through the rest of the Old Testament and ends um, with the start of the New Testament. Okay, so the first 2,000 years is the book of Genesis. The second 2,000 years is recorded from the end of Genesis throughout the Old Testament. Then the last 2,000 years is from the Messiah unto the present day. And it's during this last 2,000 years that God has been developing the church, getting us ready now to receive the Messiah back the second time. So you can see the plan of God. He's had it planned out so perfectly. Now, the record of the last 2,000 years takes in all of the New Testament, and then it goes to the year 2000 A.D., actually one month from now. Now, we know that our, our calendar, uh, you know, it may be off just a little bit, but still, we know that we're at the end of the church age. And, you know, folks, we need to be ready. The bridegroom's right at the door. You know, it's so exciting when you see how perfectly planned everything is, and, and God's ready. He's ready to send the son back. Now, experts pretty well agree that Moses, of course, he's the one that led the children of Israel back into the promised land after they had been in Egyptian bondage. And he did that about 500 years after Abraham. And they believe that he's the one who took those 11 documents that make up the first 2,000 years of human history and wrote the book of Genesis. Most of them are in agreement. But who wrote the 11 documents? Where did those come from? Well, we find that writing was in common use long before the, the time of Moses. Therefore, those 11 documents could very easily have been written down by Noah, by Shem, by Abraham, or any one of those faithful men that were listed in, in the genealogy. Because, see, those documents were not all written by the same person. They were, it was a collection that was written by a lot of different men. Now, the first document was a hymn that has come to be known as the creation hymn. Now, it, it, it's in the document, it's not called creation hymn. Uh, we call it that. But it, it, it's known as the creation hymn, and it could have been recorded by Adam. If you'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 and... Just put it to song. See, it's believed that it was sung as a ritual in some of the earliest times of worship. And it's fun to go back and take Genesis chapter 1 and, and sing it because that's what they did with it when it was first written. So God's had his people worshiping him in song for a long, long time. You know, this is not something we've just come up with in, in the last 200 years. He, he gave us a voice to be able to praise and to worship him. And I think it's interesting that the very first chapter in the Bible is a song actually praising God for, uh, for his handiwork. Now, another one of the 11 documents uh, is the record of the preparation of the ark and the flood. Now, this was probably written down by Noah or, or Shem. And this was written in diary form. It's like a journal. And then the sixth document of those 11 documents that make up the book of Genesis is a record of Shem's descendants. It's a, it's a genealogy leading up to Abraham. Now, this sixth document covers 10 generations 
It actually covers 427 years. And we said earlier that Noah's son Shem probably recorded this sixth document simply because his life spanned the entire 427 years that's been recorded. So he would be the logical one uh, to have written it down. And, you know, when we, uh, when we think about a genealogy, we think about, you know, searching through the, end, uh, through the people and saying, okay, who was the great-grandfather? And, you know, you write letters and find out. But all he was doing was sitting down writing about his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, people that he's known. He knew all those. These were children that, that he knew. Um, and I thought, you know, it would be easy for me to sit down and, and write about my children and my grandchildren, and some of you then could go on and write about your great-grandchildren because we've known them. Well, it's interesting to think that uh, when he writes the gene genealogy, he's writing about people that he's lived with. Now, this brings us back then to Genesis 11, verse 26, and this is the first mention of Abraham, first mention that we have of him in the Bible. Now, Abraham living in a society such as Ur, uh, full of culture, full of books, full of libraries, would probably have been a very well-educated man. Now, it's believed that he uh, must have made very careful and accurate copies of all these accounts and these records that he received from his ancestors, probably from Shem. And then to those records that were given to him, he added the story of his own life. So we were quite sure that he wrote that particular document because it's the story of his life, it's the story of, uh, of his children and his grandchildren, and it's also a record of God's promises to him. And so that makes up one of those 11 documents. Now, all of these would have been written on clay tablets, probably in, in cuneiform. Now, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and believed the promises that God had made to him concerning the fact that there was going to be a great nation that would come forth from him. And so if he truly believed that, then it would be easy for him to see the need to keep accurate records. You know, you can see why he saw the need for these stories to be preserved because God had told him, hey, there's going to be a great nation. So he wanted to preserve these stories and these promises to be handed down to this nation. And we do have very accurate records making up the book of Genesis, even though it was written thousands of years ago. Okay, now hopefully with this background, the transition from Adam to Noah to Abraham is a little more understandable. After I studied this, it made it so much easier for, for me to, to get into a, a study of Genesis. Now, we said earlier that Acts 7 tells us that Abram got his call from God while he was still in the city of Ur. Now, it's amazing to me how no matter uh, how, how corrupt something is or how much evil is in the world, uh, God always seems to have his faithful ones right there. You know, and, and that gives me so much hope when I see that. And even though many times they're few in number, you know, being in the majority certainly doesn't necessarily mean that it's of God. Probably just the opposite. <laughs> if, if it's the majority, sometimes that's telling us that it's not of God. But by the time that Abraham uh, has gotten his call from God and he's moved into the promised land, by this time Shem would have been one of the very few left who believed in the one true God. And by this time, he's a very old, old man. And possibly there were only a few at that time who believed 
in God. But that's all it took. That's all it took for God to be able to start this nation that he, he was preparing. God never seems to work in great numbers. And so in verse 29, it lets us know that Abraham married his half-sister and his brother Nahor now married his niece. Now, we don't hear any more about Nahor until finally Isaac needs a wife and then Nahor comes back on the scene. But until then, we don't hear about him. Okay, in verse 30, it tells us again that Sarai was barren. She had no children. And it tells us that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and they settled there. Okay, now, by this time, Abraham has traveled halfway to the promised land, but he's still in Babylon. He's gotten 600 miles closer to the promised land, but he's still not there. But in chapter 12, God gives him a covenant now in which the entire destiny of mankind rests. And so in Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country... Go away from your relatives, go from your father's house, go to the land which I will show you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'm going to make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you will be cursed. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now on almost every line of God's word, you can see God's mercy. See, uh, immediately after God has changed the languages and, and he's dispersed the nations uh, because of all their wickedness, immediately we find his working on this call to Abraham. You know, it's almost like Abraham's call is like God's free gift of life that he's offering right there in the midst of judgment. You know, the, the judgment is, is coming on these nations. And, and yet uh, God is saying, you know, I, I'm going to give you, I still have my plan and I'm going to give you a chance. So not, no matter how bad man gets, God's always there offering a way out of our mess if we'll just make that choice to go with him. And it's, it's like Noah was the first beginning after the new beginning after the flood. Well, now Abraham marks a new beginning he marks a call, the new beginning, to this call to return to God's original plan of blessing for all mankind. God had a, a plan, and we find him constantly going back to that plan. He never uh, deviates from that plan. He never veers from it. And so this is a new beginning. Now, you need to mark out in the, the margin that Genesis chapter 12 is where the story of redemption actually starts in the natural realm. Now, of course, it starts in the heart of God. But if you want to know where it actually starts in the physical realm, it's right here in chapter 12. Now, God mentioned the redemption in the Garden of Eden. But here, 2,000 years after the fall of man and only approximately 400 years after the earth has been destroyed by flood, in, in a world that's totally fallen again into idolatry and into evil, we find that this time God calls one man, because there's probably not many that, that, are, that are even there to believe in him, but he calls one man to become the starting place, the new beginning for the eternal redemption of all mankind. Okay, so at this point, chapter 12, we are a third of the way to present day. 
We've come a third of the way, 2,000 years. And as Noah takes hold of this promise and believes God, his faith isn't developed. We're going to find him making mistake after mistake, but God keeps working on his faith and he moves from faith to faith until God has him exactly at the place where he needs to be for him to come into covenant with God for the Messiah uh, to, to be the family that the Messiah would be birthed into. So next week now we're going to get into the actual story of Abraham's life. We're going to see mistakes that he made where God turned his mistakes and, and uh, brought good out of it. We're also going to see the times when, when he stood in faith, when, you know, it, it's hard for me to imagine how any man could have stood like, like Abraham stood. And yet God had prepared his heart to bring him to that place. Father, I thank you that we can look into the lives of these great men in, in the Old Testament. And Father, we thank you for them. We thank you for their lives. We thank you, Father, for the things that we can learn from them. Father, we thank you that they were willing to come into covenant with you. But Father, most of all, we thank you that no matter how evil the world became, you still kept coming back to your original plan. Father, you never gave up on us. And we're so grateful, Father. I'm so grateful that you never gave up on us. Father, even though there might have only been one man at that time that, that could stand, Father, I thank you that you had one man and that's all you needed. We love you, Lord. We praise you and thank you for what you're doing. Father, thank you for this, this season of the year when, when we can come to a place where we uh, worship and praise you for the birth of the Messiah. This is a wonderful time, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.